Hello, Ready to Run listeners. This is Lindsay Hine. I'm the founder of Sandy Boy Productions and the host of the podcast, I'll Have Another with Lindsay Hine. And why is everyone yelling with Lindsay Hine? And we are so excited that Two Before is supporting all of the shows in the Sandy Boy Productions podcast network. What is Two Before? It is a natural sports performance superfood made from New Zealand blackcurrant berries, which boast exceptionally high antioxidant levels proven to enhance athletic performance. A little bit sweet, a little bit tangy, this berry will help you get more out of the work you put in. Blackberry currants improve endurance by increasing blood flow, making it more efficient for the body to pump oxygenated, nutrient-rich blood to the muscles. You can kickstart your recovery by reducing muscle soreness and managing inflammation and strengthen your immunity. Immune-boosting antioxidants and naturally occurring vitamin C are in the black currant berries, okay? So you just drink this 30 to 45 minutes before your workout. You combine their powder with four to eight ounces of water, juice, or electrolyte mix. I just use water and shake it up. I've been using this before intense workouts and love how it's making me feel. And you all can try it out and get 30% off. 2B4 is offering an exclusive limited time offer to the listeners. 30% off for 20 packs plus free shipping when you use the code Lindsay at checkout. Just go to 2Before.com. That's the number 2, 2Before.com and use the code Lindsay at checkout. All right, I will hand it over to your host. Enjoy this episode of Ready to Run. Welcome to the Ready to Run podcast. I'm your co-host, Efren Kabalius, and I'm a sports medicine physician. I'm your co-host, Kurt Roser, and I'm a physical therapist. We're based out of the Boulder, Colorado area and have a passion for working with endurance athletes of all abilities. The goal of our podcast is to engage in thoughtful discussions with athletes, coaches, and clinicians to share knowledge within the field of sports medicine and inspire progression in the sport of running. We hope to empower individuals to navigate injuries, reduce injury risk, optimize training and performance, and provide listeners with the tools needed to get ready to run. You'll be able to listen to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you enjoy listening to podcasts. Subscribe and leave a rating and review to let us know what you think and what you'd like to hear on the show. You can also follow us on Instagram at Ready to Run Podcast, as well as our website, readytorunpodcast.com. In our last episode, we discussed sacral bone stress injuries. Today's episode will shift to other bone stress injuries of the hip, including the femoral neck, lesser trochanter, and femoral shaft. Bone stress injuries represent up to 20% of all sports medicine and clinical diagnoses. And we think of bone stress injuries as overuse injuries that develop when there is insufficient repair of microtrauma that occurs in the setting of repetitive submaximal loading of the bone. So now these injuries occur along a continuum from stress reaction to stress fracture. So just to review a couple of key pieces of information. So your body responds to loading by having to adapt to submaximal stresses. So the way this occurs in bone is that it's going to break down through osteoclast activity and build back better with osteoblast activity. 
So if loading continues without sufficient time to recover, or if bone is unable to adapt, that's when we see an accumulation of micro-damage inside the trabecular bone that may ultimately lead to a stress reaction or stress fracture. So now insufficient recovery can mean two things. So you can have abnormal force exerted on normal bone, meaning too much force too quickly, even though the bone is structurally normal to start with. Or you can have an athlete with low bone mineral density, such as someone with red S or a low estrogen state or some other metabolic condition that affects bone, uh, reach a critical threshold of breakdown point in the bone, which sorry, with seemingly low or normal cumulative loads applied to the bone. So essentially you have abnormal bone with normal forces, and the end result is the same in terms of leading to injury. I see this quite often in energy deficient athletes who may present with recurring bone stress injuries while running at half the volume or less of what they're used to. And as you can imagine, the latter scenario can be quite frustrating for the athlete. So bone stress injuries of the hip and pelvis are likely underreported and really require a high index of suspicion for accurate diagnosis and management. So historically, trabecular bone injuries of the sacrum and pelvis and hip were considered low-risk injuries. However, recent studies suggest that trabecular bone-rich site injuries are actually associated with prolonged healing and return to sport, which means that early identification and management is important to minimize complications and time loss from sport. So as we noted in the last episode, low bone mineral density is associated with a higher risk of trabecular bone stress injuries in male and female athletes, which really highlights the importance of screening for relative energy deficiency in sport when stress injuries of the hip and pelvis are diagnosed. So let's start with one diagnosis you'll never want to miss. Bone stress injuries of the femoral neck. So what is the femoral neck? The femoral neck connects the head of the femur to the shaft. The femoral neck is divided into a superior or lateral side and an inferior or medial side. The superior side is also known as the tension side because it deals with tensile forces, kind of like stretching a rubber band, whereas the inferior side is known as the compression side because it deals with more of the compressive type forces, such as like squishing a bug. Bone stress injuries of the femoral neck tend to be more common on the compression side since a greater percentage of impact travels through the side of the hip when running. Stress injuries of the femur are considered high risk due to the possibility of fracture progression or shifting, otherwise known as displacement, and non-union in which the bone fails to heal properly. What makes these injuries so high risk is its unique blood supply. So the hip receives its blood supply from the circumflex arteries, which wrap around the neck of the femur and supplies blood to the hip. So if a fracture is present and shifts, it can actually disrupt the blood supply to the femoral head, leading to a condition known as avascular necrosis. Given the high-risk nature of these injuries, careful evaluation and detection are critical to really allow for appropriate management, recovery, and successful return to sport. So let's talk about how these athletes describe their injury and how they may present. So when a runner presents with hip pain, it's crucial to rule out potential bone stress injuries. And in my clinic, a runner of any level with hip pain without a history of trauma really has a bone stress injury until proven otherwise. So almost every single time I've diagnosed stress injuries with the femoral neck, the runner may initially think they have a hip flexor strain or may have been in PT for several weeks 
being treated for tight hip flexors, but it's actually getting worse. If you think about distance running, you have to think about what's the mechanism that somebody would even get a hip flexor strain, right? Um, these are these are low, relatively speaking, low velocity loads that are being applied over your cumulative stresses. So in distance running, the hip flexor injuries are quite rare. Um, now you may have you may have type hip flexors, and we think this may be a protective mechanism to brace the hip, but it's more often a symptom that's along for the ride rather than the primary problem. So runners with femoral neck bone stress injuries may present with vague or deep groin pain that worsens with weight-bearing activity, such as standing, walking, or running. So initially, the symptoms may occur at the end or after exercise. It may initially be described as dull, then becomes more sharp. Also become concerned when the symptoms start to progress into the non-running activities or even at rest. Um, other ways that patients may describe these as pain that radiates along the front of the thigh or the buttock, or they may take their hand and wrap it around their hip in a C-shaped distribution. Symptoms are generally hard to reproduce with different positions, such as sitting or standing. One of the other things we see is that when putting weight on the affected hip while running, these patients will shift their weight to try to spend less time on their leg. And when looking back, runners will often describe this phenomenon as trying to offload a painful hip or feeling a loss of power, especially when trying to run up a hill. So unlike other bone stress injuries of the lower body, palpation of the hip is really limited by structural depth. Um, in obvious cases, this patient may show up with a limp, um, but other things like loss of range of motion, pain with loading, pain at extreme range of motions may be present but are nonspecific. Another way we like to test runners with bone stress injuries is to have them hop on one leg. And in patients with femoral neck stress injuries, the single leg hop test may be positive, but it's also nonspecific. Other exam maneuvers we like to do, um, so pain with passive flexion, internal rotation, and adduction of the hip may be associated with femoral acetabular impingement or acetabular labrum tears, but it can also be associated with femoral neck bone stress injury. So in practice, I've seen this go both ways, where a runner was referred to me for a suspicion of a labrum tear and their impingement testing was able to reproduce the pain, um, but advanced imaging showed an underlying femoral neck stress fracture or stress reaction. We've also had the converse happen where a runner shows up very acutely with pain and a limp, positive impingement testing, and I was convinced the MRI would show something, but it ended up coming out clean for a stress injury, but positive for a symptomatic labrum tear. So, as you can see, given the limitations of the physical exam, advanced imaging is often indicated whenever there is clinical suspicion of a femoral neck bone stress injury. In most instances, we're required to obtain an x-ray before ordering an MRI. Most of them don't really show a stress fracture, especially in the first few weeks of symptom onset. So, Having a negative x-ray doesn't make you really feel any better or any worse than the fact that there's most likely not a definitive cortical break. So MRI of the hip and sometimes of the femur if there's concern for lesser trochanter or femoral shaft stress injury offers the high sensitivity and specificity for diagnosing femoral neck bone stress injuries. With femoral neck bone stress injuries, it's also important to perform a comprehensive risk factor assessment, including biomechanical training errors, red S screening, and evaluating calcium and vitamin D status. So let's move on to how we treat femoral neck bone stress injuries. So tension-sided, otherwise known as lateral or superior, femoral neck bone stress injuries often require evaluation by an orthopedic surgeon to determine whether an athlete needs surgical fixation due to the risk of fracture progression, non-union, and avascular necrosis. 
so we recommend that these athletes be non-weight-bearing with crutches and refer to ortho right away if detected. In contrast, compression-sided, otherwise known as medial or inferior, femoral neck bone stress injuries are much more common and can be managed conservatively with an initial period of non-weight-bearing with crutches, followed by weight-bearing progression after the initial healing and resolution of pain. So depending on severity, compression-sided femoral neck bone stress injuries may require four to six weeks of non-weight-bearing, followed by four to six weeks of weight-bearing progression, and this all really depends on the severity of the injury. While not routine for most stress injuries, I will often recommend a follow-up MRI at 8 to 12 weeks, depending on the initial grade of injury at the time of diagnosis. This is because of the high-risk nature of the injury and slow-healing nature of trabecular bone. So if you rely on symptoms alone and start returning to run when an athlete is pain-free, you could be right back where you started if there is insufficient healing. If the MRI appears to show progression of healing and the athlete is clinically progressing well with their loading program, then we can begin impact training with low-amplitude plyometrics, jumping and landing strategies, followed by a walk-run transition, and then return to run. Hey friends, Lindsay Hine here, founder of Sandy Boy Productions, host of the podcast, I'll Have Another with Lindsay Hine. And we are so excited to have Sidekick Tool joining the Sandy Boy Productions podcast network as a sponsor. If you have not used Sidekick Tool yet, let me tell you, it is an amazing tool for recovery. You can just use three easy steps for pain relief to help you get back to doing what you love. The Sidekick Tool can help you with shin splints, neck pain, hip pain, shoulder injuries, Achilles tendinopathy, knee pain, IT band pain, back pain, so many things. It is skin safe and it's effective. The unique edge works deeply into your muscles without causing any damage. It's an effortless massage and the tool's weight handles the workload and the versatile shape works on the full body. I use Sidekick Tool on the bottoms of my feet to avoid plantar fasciitis. And I know a lot of professionals like Molly Seidel and Sarah Hall use this tool. There is a long list of benefits to muscle scraping. The therapy stimulates multiple mechanisms to decrease pain and promote recovery. And the good news is you all can check it out. Just go to sidekicktool.com slash RTR and use the code ready to run for a 15% discount. All right, friends, enjoy the rest of the show. So it's important to define what we mean when we say return to run. Um, because a return to run program is designed to gradually expose the runner to tolerate load is very different than returning to racing and performance. So I like to follow the model of the you know, USOPC when it comes to return to sport. They have a really great model that describes uh, three phases of returning to sport after an injury, starting with return to participation, in which the athlete has recovered from the acute injury phase and can begin some form of training. The return to sport phase, where the athlete returns to sport but is not yet performing at his or her desired level. And then finally, the return to performance phase, where an athlete can perform at or above their pre-injury level. One of the first questions we get asked is, when can I run? And what I'll typically say is that one of the main reasons we approach a femoral neck bone stress injury in such a conservative manner is that when an athlete can tolerate low without pain, that means they're healing but it doesn't necessarily mean that the bone itself is healed. So in fact, a study by Stuart Warden and his group showed that 
full bone remineralization after a femoral neck bone stress injury can take up to 285 days. So that's roughly nine and a half months from the time of the injury until the bone is fully healed. Once we initiate running, the next thing we get asked is, well, when can I race? And the literature shows that there is a linear risk of re-injury with increasing volume of running. But when you start to add intensity with speed and hill training, the risk increases exponentially. So best case scenario following a femoral neck bone stress injury, we've mapped out 8 to 12 weeks of protected weight bearing, followed by strengthening and non-impact and low-impact cardio, give or take 6 weeks of return to run program, 6 weeks of base training, and let's say 12 to 16 weeks for a half marathon or a marathon training program, which is standard for, for most people. So that's about 9 to 10 months at best, just to get back to return to racing form after being diagnosed with a femoral neck bone stress injury. So I often get a lot of pushback when I say this up front, but it's important to kind of express this and kind of give the details behind the science because it's important to manage expectations early on based on the best available literature, not based on anecdotal stories of how someone's teammate may have come back from their injury. So as a physician, my goal is to get the athlete back healthy and possibly performing stronger and with greater consistency than when they showed up in my office in the first place. So when an athlete is just starting their return to run program and signs up for a race that's three to four months down the road, I often take pause and express some reservations um, as this is the most really, really the most volatile period of the return to run progression and where injury risk can be at its highest. It also shifts the mindset away from rehab and great exposure to trying to crowbar fitness in a certain time frame when that time frame may or may not be compatible with how these injuries will typically heal. So it's often these scenarios um, that tend to lead to the recurring bone stress injury and having to restart that cycle of healing all over again. So this is what we really want to try to avoid. Um, so this is an injury you can't miss, and you really want to make sure that we return these runners back to sports safely when the injury has appropriately healed. So the next injury I'll discuss in brief are bone stress injuries of the lesser choke cancer. So the lesser choke cancer lies just below the neck of the femur and is a bony prominence that serves as the insertion site for the iliopsoas tendon, which is the main tendon that contributes to hip flexion. Lesser choke cancer bone stress injuries are rarely reported in literature, and the key thing to consider with lesser choke cancer bone stress injuries is that these stress injuries can occur where a muscle or a tendon inserts. So the mechanism described in lesser trochanter bone stress injuries includes repetitive iliopsoas activation or repetitive hip flexion, which leads to chronic traction injury in which forces get dissipated through the bone and places undue stress on the adjacent femoral neck. And in a retrospective study of nine runners with lesser trochanter stress injuries, all were found to have iliopsoas tendinopathy, maybe some periostitis near the lesser trochanter, and varying degrees of merodema. Um, at the lesser trochanter extending to the femoral neck. So anecdotally, in a high-volume running clinic, I've only seen a handful of lesser trochanter bone stress injuries, and all demonstrated iliopsoas tendinopathy. In one case, we actually had a patient demonstrate a partial tear of the iliopsoas, and it was in conjunction with a lesser trochanter stress injury that we suspect may have been provoked by repetitive strain from high repetition, open chain hip flexion strength exercise with an external load applied to the hip that then progressed into feeling more symptomatic with running. So it wasn't necessarily the running itself in this distance runner, but maybe something else outside of that um, that may have been the initial insult. 
So it's important not to mistake these injuries as just a hip flexor strain because bone stress injuries of the lesser trochanter in rare cases may progress to the femoral neck, thus converting them from a low-risk injury to a high-risk injury. Treatment follows the same algorithm as femoral neck bone stress injuries and should require a period of non-weight bearing to prevent progression to femoral neck bone stress injury. And um, one of the things you really want to consider in terms of cross-training with this particular injury is that you may not want these athletes to use aquatogging as a non-weight bearing form of exercise because the iliopsoas is the primary hip flexor and attaches to the lesser trochanter. Therefore, the repetitive hip flexion activity that essentially yank on the bony attachment may actually prolong the healing of this injury. So lastly, we'll move on to the uh, femoral shaft. So while these injuries are not high risk, they can become high risk if you miss them. So most often these injuries occur along the diaphysis of the femur, but you can also have femoral shaft injuries occur lower down at the distal metaphysis, closer to the knee, as a result of insufficiency of the subconscious bone. So if you identify a distal femur bone stress injury, it should raise a red flag for red S or other metabolic causes of low bone mineral density. So due to the bow-shaped anatomy of the femoral shaft, the lateral or outer side of the shaft is under tension, while the medial or inner side of the shaft tends to be under more compressive type flows when running. So these injuries will often present with a dull ache that can't really be reproduced with palpation. There may be some pain with single leg hop, and often these are confused with a quadriceps strain, but the mechanism of distance running doesn't really fit here. Um, so one of the ways to test to these injuries is to perform a fulcrum test. Um, and it's important to test this in supine with the patient laying on their back and prone where the patient's laying on their stomach. So during this test, the athlete is uh, seated with the lower leg hanging off the exam table. The clinician places their arm as a fulcrum beneath the thigh while the other hand rests on top of the thigh just above the knee while applying a light downward pressure. So a positive test is when pressure on the knee will then result in a sharp and full pain along the shaft of the femur. So it's important to do your due diligence in working these injuries uh, with awful diagnostic consideration. Um, you know, femoral shaft injuries are best diagnosed with an MRI of the femur or the thigh. So findings may typically include periosteal or bone marrow edema or a fracture line along the medial aspect of the femur between the proximal and the middle one-thirds. They can also occur laterally or at the distal third of the femur. So the typical timeline for returning to running is approximately 8 to 12 weeks, and there really isn't much ter in terms of data on how to safely return an athlete after um, diagnosing a femoral shaft bone stress injury. Um, Ivkovic described an algorithm in the British Journal of Sports Medicine in 2006, which essentially follows three-week phases, starting with non-weight-bearing phase for the first three weeks, bring them back, perform a fulcrum test and a hop test. If the test is positive, then you return back to the beginning of the phase. Um, and once you get them out of that symptomatic phase, you start to wean them off crutches and start with basic strengthening. Bring them back in three weeks, and if they're doing fine, um, don't report a relapse. Um, you can start your progression of heavier load strengthening, impact testing, followed by return to run progression. So the important takeaways from this episode are that bone stress injuries of the hip and pelvis require a high index of suspicion for early diagnosis and appropriate management to limit any complications in time away from the sport. Bone stress injuries of the femur, sacrum, and pelvis are categorized as trabecular bone stress injuries and are associated with prolonged healing as compared to cortical bone type stress injuries of the lower extremity. And given that trabecular bone stress injuries are more often associated with red S than cortical bone injuries, screening and multidisciplinary management is especially critical in the treatment paradigm.
So before starting a return to run program, it's always important to know what led to the injury in the first place. Was it training years, inadequate fueling, or medical problem leading to low bone mineral density? And so as a clinician, it's also important to manage expectations. You know, patients hear what they want to hear. So if you say femoral neck bone stress injury takes 8 to 12 weeks to heal, they're going to hear 8 weeks. So make sure you say it several times and even draw it out because the first time you say something to an athlete, they're likely going to be catastrophizing and not listening uh, to the message you're trying to express. So it's important to recognize what your athlete is going through and meet them where they're at. Also set realistic expectations in terms of how to return to sport, in terms of return to participation, return to sport, return to performance, but also be positive. You know, these injuries take time, strategic recovery, and deliver rehabilitation uh, with the return to sport progression. And um, helping athletes overcome these injuries and return to consistent training uh, can really be very rewarding for both the athlete and the clinician. So I hope you enjoyed this episode and we're able to take away some salient points to help recognize bone stress injuries of the hip when you see them or if you're someone dealing with this injury. I hope this helps you find the answers you need to stay healthy and ready to return to run.